The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. We cannot allow any race as greedy and corruptible as yours to have free run of the galaxy. I'm curious, Norman, just how do you intend to stop them? We shall serve them. Their kind will be eager to accept our service. Soon they will become completely dependent upon us. Their aggressive and acquisitive instincts will be under our control. We shall take care of them. Eminently practical. The whole galaxy controlled by your kind? Yes, Captain. And we shall serve them and you will be happy. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, November 18th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our opener today came from an episode of the 60s series Star Trek entitled I, Mud, intended as a comedic episode, in complete contrast to the very dramatic and philosophical earlier related episode entitled Mud's Women, Mud referring to the character named Harry Mud. I recall that when I first watched the Star Trek episode I, Mud back in the 60s, and ever since, that I considered it among the most Ridiculous, least credible episodes of the series, (laughs) which I otherwise still regard as one of television's finest series productions. But that episode, comedic value aside, was outrageous and ridiculous, which is part of what made it funny. Little in my wildest dreams would I ever have imagined that only a few decades after the initial airing of that Star Trek episode that we would all be literally speeding towards that dystopian zeitgeist. We'll own nothing and be happy. That's their big plan. Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. A plan so insane on its own face that a significant number of people cannot even entertain the notion that such a thing is even possible. I wish I could believe that this was so. The pending tragedy, of course, is that they are the very people carrying out the plan they cannot see by submitting to it. Since our broadcast last week, I've learned a lot about this group of people, and about you and me as well. A lot of questions that keep getting asked about the nature of our political crisis today, and why we're doing what we're doing to ourselves, will be answered during the course of our show. Our broadcast last week was entitled, Remembrance Days, Fascism's Ally and Tyranny, and the word days was spelt D-A-Z-E to put the discussion focus on psychology and the philosophy of freedom's enemies and fascism's friends. If you recall, at the end of our show last week, I mentioned I still had another 17 letters to the editor to review, which were impossible to squeeze into our single one-hour broadcast. And then I said, and I quote, I'll save them for an upcoming broadcast because these letters reveal a dark and necessary-to-understand psychology, end quote. Well, that was on our November 10 and 11 broadcast, and then, lo and behold, on November 12, the very next day, an online media event took place that was entirely devoted to explaining, in terms of fundamental psychological realities, 
that dark and necessary to understand psychology, which I was seeing in all the letters that I was sharing. It is dark. It is disturbing. It is necessary to understand, as I expect you will understand by the end of today's broadcast, which all gets underway right after our recommendations that you write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. As I concluded last week, what the majority of the letter writers I cited had in common was their mutual contempt for individual freedom of choice. For example, a few representative comments. Since when do the rights of the individual override the rights of the group? Or, in a letter to the editor, the writer equates his grandparents risking their very lives in a real war to his selfish fight for choice and freedom. Or, it is shameful to suggest Canadians enlisted in the Second World War so their descendants could choose to refuse a life-saving vaccine. Or, some now claim a right to choose to refuse vaccination, an act of selfishness. Or, coercing them may be the only way to get recalcitrant people to put the common health above conspiracy theories and their selfish wishes to avoid possible minor vaccine side effects and finally vaccinate. Or, in a collective society during a pandemic, each person must pull together for the betterment of all. And finally, this one, civilization did not get this far by individual rights. And so it went. But before I get back to more letters to the editor, I wanted to highlight this item. An editorial by a post-media writer named Daphne Brahman. It appeared on October 27th under the heading, Anti-Vaxxers Share Deep Distrust of Politicians. And in her editorial, she laments the fact that a free paper called Common Ground once catering to, quote, people interested in alternative therapies, spirituality, and ecology, and attracted writers like David Suzuki, end quote, has now turned into a magazine that is a, quote, conduit for anti-vaccination and anti-restrictions messaging and conspiracy theories. So the article continues, quote, If anything, common ground is a useful tool for gaining a more nuanced picture of anti-vaxxers. Far from being overweight, poorly educated, gun-toting, religious rubes from the prairies who vote for the People's Party of Canada, they may be as likely to be vegans in Nelson, eco-warriors with crystals, and Kitsilano moms with yoga mats tucked under their arms. The common ground shared by these seemingly disparate groups is a deep distrust of politicians and disaffection from political institutions, mainstream media, science, and modern medicine. Common Ground likens Ontario Premier Doug Ford's government to the Nazis. But here are a couple of things to remember. Worldwide, COVID-19 has resulted in the death of 4.8 million people and sickened more than 236 million others. It has forced provinces like Alberta to call in the military, the Red Cross, and accept help from other provinces after its intensive care units couldn't handle all of the COVID patients and the overwhelming majority of those in ICU are people who refuse to get vaccinated, end quote. 
Wow. Talk about, this is all backwards to reality. And man, that was an obvious smear article. And every supposed statistic I just read from it is false and misleading. And remarkable that in a part of her article I didn't read here, she cites Health Canada's reports of 17,982 adverse events, never mentioning a single death among those events, quote-unquote, and saying that this is only 00.32% of the 56 million doses given. 12,000 of those reactions were considered serious, she writes. <laughs> but no mention of the fact that all previous to COVID vaccines were taken off the market after only one or two dozen deaths or of the fact that the vast, vast majority of deaths were caused by prohibiting and disallowing known effective treatments and therapies which are never mentioned in reports like this, or the fact that the so-called vaccines are themselves the source of the problem, or the fact that the majority of people in the hospitals are the vaccinated. Pure BS masquerading as facts. But in the midst of the BS and non-facts are some truths about which I'll say more later in the show today. Well, here's a new letter to the editor to bring to our attention. This one's titled, Just a Contrarian, written by Robert M. Hmm, I know a guy with those initials. In the London Free Press on October 21st. Quote, For those fighting for freedom, this is our finest hour, states Councillor Michael Van Holst. Is he actually comparing himself to Winston Churchill and those who fought the Battle of Britain? He must be delusional. From my perspective, he's nothing but a contrarian whose ego is stroked by taking the opposite position to the majority, end quote. <laughs> now that's an interesting psychological evaluation of a person that Robert obviously doesn't know, and which is false based on the argument he himself used to arrive at his evaluation. People opposed to the majority have ego problems. I mean, that's the way he thinks. That's his rationale. It might be more accurate to suggest that those opposed to a majority actually have an ego, whereas the majority is comprised of mindless drones. Since the majority is collectivist in nature, whether communist, socialist, or fascist, and since someone like me is an individualist having fought for freedom and for capitalism consistently for many decades, that would merely make me a contrarian, right? According to the letter writer Robert's assessment. In this way, Robert and others like him can merely dismiss any and all arguments and observations that those in the minority might make. But the truth is never about majorities or minorities. It's about right and wrong. It's about real or unreal. It's about reasonable or irrational. It's about freedom or tyranny. It may sound harsh, but Robert is a tyrannical fascist based on the very perspective he expressed in his letter and based on the definition of those words. We have to use them. And what is wrong with people like this? And why do fascist totalitarian ideas permeate so many minds of citizens in a supposedly free nation? To answer that question, we must turn to psychology. And what you are about to hear from one Dr. Matthias Desma, as he was interviewed by a legal panel led by Dr. Reinhold Fulmich, and it is profound. It transcends, in many ways, every other dimension of the COVID pandemic, from the science to the politics or any other dimension that we've discussed thus far. It is the key to understanding and reversing our fascist plunge into tyranny. The original panel discussion was over two hours in length, 
Dr. Desma specializes in studying and teaching about, and get this, the mechanisms of mass formation and totalitarian thinking. And by mass formation, he's talking about collectivism, about group psychology. And it's all very reminiscent of Willem Reich's Mass Psychology of Fascism, which he wrote about his experiences during the years leading up to World War II. If even half of what Dr. Desma has to say in this discussion is valid, and from what I've seen and heard, it sure is, well, then, Houston, we have a problem. Professor Desmet, you are um, a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. You're a lecturing professor at Ghent University in Belgium, and you specialize in the mechanisms of mass formation and totalitarian thinking. Is, is that correct? I, I'm a professor in clinical psychology at Ghent University, and I'm also, uh, I also have a master's degree in statistics. In the beginning of the crisis, I have been studying the statistics and the numbers, And uh, actually, I noticed that they were often blatantly wrong. Uh, and, and at the same time, people continued to believe in it and to go along with the mainstream narrative. And that was why I, uh, I started to study it rather from, uh, from the perspective of mass psychology, uh, because I knew that uh, mass formation has huge, huge impact uh, on uh, individuals' intelligence and cognitive functioning. And I've, I had the feeling that this was the only thing that could explain why highly intelligent people uh, started to believe in a narrative and in numbers that were, uh, in many respects, utterly absurd. Apart from the mainstream media, what is it that has caused this illusion for so many people that they don't see the reality, but they see a totally different picture of what really goes on? Yes, four things need to be in place if you want large-scale mass phenomena to emerge. The first thing is that there need to be a lot of socially isolated people, uh, people who experience a lack of social bond. The second one is that uh, there need to be a lot of people who experience a lack of sense-making in life. And the third and the fourth condition uh, is that uh, there need to be a lot of free-floating anxiety and a lot of free-floating psychological discontent, uh, meaning anxiety and discontent that is not connected to a specific representation. So it needs to be in the mind without the people being able to connect it to something. If you have these four things, lack of social bond, lack of sense-making, free-floating anxiety and free-floating uh, psychological discontent, then society is highly at risk for the emergence of, of mass phenomena. And these four conditions existed shortly before the corona crisis. There was like an epidemic of burnout. Over 40 to 70 percent of the people experienced their jobs as completely senseless. If you look at the use of uh, psychopharmaceuticals, uh, it was huge. And then you, that this shows how much discontent uh, there was in our society. For instance, in Belgium, uh, every year, Belgians, who are with, you are with uh, 11 million people, use Over 300 million doses of antidepressants alone. Over 300 million doses. So that's huge. And so you, you see that these four conditions really existed. Uh, lack of sense-making, lack of social bond, uh, free-floating anxiety, and then uh, free-floating uh, discontent. Yeah, so you have to know that free-floating anxiety is the most painful 
psychological phenomena someone can experience. And so it's extremely unpainful. It, it leads up to panic attacks, to all kinds of extremely painful psychological experiences. So what people want in this situation is something to connect their anxiety to. They are looking for an explanation for their anxiety. And now, if this free-floating anxiety is highly present in a population and the media provide a narrative which indicates uh, an object of anxiety and at the same time describe a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then all the anxiety connects to this object and people are willing to follow the strategy to deal with this object no matter what the coast is. That is what happens in the beginning of mass formation. Then, in a second step, people start a collective and heroic battle with this object of anxiety. And in that way, a new kind of social bond emerges and a new kind of sense-making. Suddenly, life is all directed at battling the object of anxiety and in this way, establishing a new connection with uh, other people. And that the sudden switch of a negative state, a radical lack of social connection, to the opposite, to uh, the massive social connection that is experienced in a crowd, the sudden switch leads up to a sort of mental intoxication. And that makes mass formation or crowd formation the exact equivalent of hypnosis. So all people who have been describing, who have been studying mass formation, such, such as Gustave Le Bon, for instance, uh, McDougall, uh, Canetti, have remarked that mass formation is not similar to hypnosis, that mass formation is exactly equal to hypnosis. Mass formation is a sort of hypnosis. So what happens is that at that moment, when people experience this mental intoxication, it doesn't matter anymore whether the narrative is correct or wrong, even blatantly wrong. What matters is that it leads up to this mental intoxication. And that's why they continue to go along with the narrative, even if they could know by thinking for one second that it is wrong. That is the, the central mechanism of mass formation, and that makes it so difficult to destroy it. Because for people, it doesn't matter when the narrative is wrong. And what we all try to do is we all try to show constantly that the narrative is wrong. But for people, that's not what it is all about. It's all about this, the fact that they don't want to go back to this painful state of free-floating anxiety. So what we have to realize, if we want to change this state of affairs, is that the first thing we have to do is to acknowledge this painful anxiety, to think about why we got in the state of lack of sense-making, lack of social bond, this massive psychological discontent, and try to tell people, now, we don't need a corona crisis to establish a new social bond. We have to look for other ways to deal with the psychological problems that existed before the corona crisis and try to find other solutions. We don't need 
this kind of mass phenomenon to solve the, the, the problem. So actually mass formation is actually a symptomatic solution for a real psychological problem. And in my opinion, this crisis in the first place is a large societal and psychological crisis, much more than a, a biological crisis, let's say. So and from, from this state of mental intoxication, you can explain all the rest of the phenomena of, of totalitarianism. And the mental intoxication leads to a narrowing of the field of attention. It makes that people only see what is indicated by the narrative. For instance, people see the victims of the coronavirus, but they don't seem to see at the cognitive level, the, the collateral damage of the lockdowns and all the victims uh, uh, that are claimed by the lockdowns, they are also not able uh, at an emotional level to really feel empathy for the victims of the lockdowns. Uh, that is not because they are very egoistic. No, it's just an effect of the psychological phenomenon. As a consequence of mass formation, people do not get egoistic at all. Rather, to the contrary, mass formation focuses the attention so much on one point that you can take everything away of people, their psychological and physical well-being, their material well-being, you can take it away and they will even not notice it. And that's one of the, of the major consequences of mass formation. And it's exactly the same as hypnosis, as classical hypnosis. When during hypnosis, someone's attention is focused on one point, you can cut in his flesh. The person will not notice it. And that is what happens all the time when hypnosis is used kind of um, anesthesia during a surgical operations, rather simple hypnotic procedures is sufficient to make people completely insensitive to pain. Uh, you can, without any problem, cut in their flesh, even under some uh, circumstances, you can perform an open heart operation in which the surgeon cuts straight through the, to the breastbone and, this, and the person, the, the patient will not notice this. And so that, that shows us that the focusing of attention is, is so strong, both in mass formation or in hypnosis, that people are really insensitive to all the personal losses they experience as a consequence. Another consequence that is very typical for totalitarian states is that people become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. And so because if someone tells another story or if someone claims that uh, the official story is wrong, then this person threatens to wake the people up and they will get angry because we are, they are confronted with uh, the initial uh, anxiety and the initial uh, psychological discontent. And so they direct all their aggression at these uh, dissonant voices, at the other voices. And at the same time, they are radically tolerant for their leaders, for the people who, who pronounce the mainstream narrative. These people can actually cheat and lie and manipulate and do everything they want. Uh, they will always be forgiven by the crowd uh, because the crowd seems to think that they do it for their own sake. And that's also part of the mechanism of, uh, of mass formation. What do you think? This is not an accident. Who's responsible for this, for this mass hypnosis? Is it colleagues of yours? That's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea. That is a good question, isn't it? In a later part of his interview, which will not be heard here today, Dr. Desma said that he was unaware of any psychologists from Belgium 
being responsible for initiating the crisis, but did say he was aware that the British government had actually hired psychologists to create a wave of fear in the populace. But, you know, the state of hypnosis explains a lot. And it certainly explains that look in Doug Ford's eyes every time he appears in public making bizarro pronouncements on Ontario lockdowns and other political superstitions. How many times have we commented that Ontario Premier Doug Ford looks like a deer caught in the headlights of a car heading straight for him? But isn't that exactly describing a state of hypnosis? Isn't that exactly what happens to the deer standing still while staring into the headlights of a vehicle about to kill it? Clearly, what Dr. Desma has said would strongly suggest that societies require a common value or goal to unite them. There was a time when freedom was that common goal or value, but today most people are too ignorant of the horrors of freedom's opposite, collectivism. That's because most of them have been fortunate enough not to have to live through any such circumstances. This also accounts for the unifying phenomenon of religion, particularly in the way that religion, quote, provides a narrative providing an object of anxiety and a strategy to alleviate it, end quote. No wonder totalitarian states hate religion so much. Religion offers a relief of anxiety in its adherence that the state wants to monopolize. But there is a critical difference between state and religion in this regard, which we can explore later. We'll be hearing more from Dr. Desma shortly, but let's first sample a few more letters to the editor, shall we? I'll never get to all of, all of the 17 of them, but when you listen to these commentaries, consider what psychological forces are at work, especially when you're constantly being faced with completely illogical and irrational arguments to say nothing of the radical intolerance for dissonant voices constantly being expressed by the hypnotized. Don't be a lemming, <laughs> ironically reads the heading of this letter to the editor by Diane Kay on October 26th. Quote, Those of us who follow the science, look at the evidence, and have done the responsible thing in getting vaccinated against COVID-19 are called sheeples by anti-vaxxers. If we are sheeples, they are lemmings. Lemmings follow their leaders blindly, even over the edge of a cliff, Anti-vaxxers mindlessly believe wacky conspiracy theories, pseudoscience, and internet quacks, and as a result, many will become sick or die of COVID. By refusing safe vaccines, they are dragging out the pandemic, causing hospitals to be overwhelmed, surgeries to be canceled, and possible new variants to develop. I would rather be a sheeple than a lemming, end quote. Wow. Well, that's certainly an intellectual analysis of the evidence surrounding the so-called COVID vaccines. I'd like to know what science and what evidence has Diane ever been looking at? The science of sheeples and lemmings? Or the political science of killing the messenger by labeling the messengers anti-vaxxers, mindless, wacky conspiracy theorists, believers in pseudoscience, and internet quacks. Shame on Diane. She is a sheeple and proudly admits it. I would rather be a sheeple than a lemming, she says, but in being the former, she's doomed to becoming the latter. And it's just stunning that, you know, these pseudoscientists they think they're referring to are the inventors of the vaccines. They're the people who are on the front lines of the creation of these things, and they still don't pay attention to them. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. But, of course, we know why now. Here's one I like. Rights claim wrong. 
reads a letter from Robert D. on November 5th. Quote, I do not wish anyone harm, but if those avid anti-vaccine protesters were to contract COVID-19, then be made to pay the entire cost of their medical treatment, I would be pleased. Maybe then they would see the wisdom of the program. They claim compulsory vaccination violates their rights. Well, your rights do not include endangering the health of others. I wonder if any of those protesters were to be bitten by a rabid animal or poisonous snake if they would refuse the antidotes. End quote. Well, an antidote isn't exactly a vaccine. And you know, anyone that begins a sentence like, I do not wish anyone harm, but <laughs> you're being explicitly told that this person does wish others harm. In fact, Robert wants to punish free individuals for exercising their inalienable rights by simply depriving them of the same bad health care that everyone else has been forced to pay for and making them pay the entire cost of their medical treatment. Apparently treatment against COVID-19, which would be negligible if the fascists weren't already prohibiting those inexpensive 37 cent a tablet of ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, or any host of vitamin C, D, zinc, whatever. No, they don't ever talk about those. But that, of course, wasn't Robert D.'s objective. He has that same contempt for individual freedom of choice I mentioned earlier. By the way, the same freedom of choice he could be exercising in looking after his own health instead of insisting that we look after him. Can you see the irrational selfishness that's driving all of this? But nowhere does Robert mention any actual facts about the harmful consequences of the vaccines nor is he probably even aware of them. After all, he's been writing letters to the London Free Press, our local fake news source. Here's more from Dr. Desma. Now, we're all of us lawyers here, and uh, we're uh, since this is something that we have no personal, at least I don't, uh, knowledge about, we depend on the testimony and on interviewing um, uh, experts like you. Now, if I look at the totality of the evidence that we have uh, that we have seen over the course of the existence of this Corona Investigative Committee, there is no other conclusion than that this has never been about health. There is something sinister and evil going on. This is intentional destruction of uh, businesses and of human lives. And if you read what the people who are behind this, this is not hidden any place. If you read what they're saying out loud, including in their great reset and other papers, um, then this is distinctly what they're trying to do, destroy. What kind of people do this? What, who does this? I mean, do you have to be crazy? Do you have to be do you have to be a sociopath? or a psychopath? What kind of people do this? I think that the most fruitful perspective uh, to answer this question is to look at the people who, uh, who installed the totalitarian regimes in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany. And one thing is sure, they are not common criminals. And because most of these people perfectly know how to behave according to social rules. And so while a classical criminal actually transgresses uh, all kinds of social rules. People in a totalitarian state who commit the crimes are usually characterized by the opposite. They stick to the rules, even if the rules are radically 
a criminal in themselves. So that that's that's a major difference. And also that's a very they stick to the rules because they make these rules. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's possible. Yes, that's possible for their own advantage. It's perfectly possible. Another interesting thing in this context is that people like Gustave Le Bon and Hannah Arendt claim that if there is one difference between mass formation and totalitarianism, because the two are almost identical, on the one hand, and uh, classical hypnosis on the other hand, then it is that while in classical hypnosis, uh, the, the, the one who hypnotizes is awake, uh, his field of attention is not narrowed down. In mass formation and in totalitarianism, the field of attention of the leaders of the masses, of the totalitarian leaders, is usually even narrower than the field of attention of uh, the population. Meaning that uh, the totalitarian leaders and the leaders of the masses usually really believe in the ideology according to which they try to organize society. So they are convinced, for instance, of transhumanism. They are convinced uh, of uh, uh, mechanistic materialism and so on. They are convinced of the ideology. They are convinced that this ideology will bring people in a, a kind of artificial paradise because that's something that is common to all kinds of totalitarianism. The totalitarianism actually for the first time arose in the beginning of the 20th century. Before it, it, it didn't exist. Before uh, the, the 20th century, we had classical dictatorships. But starting from the 20th century, we had uh, totalitarian regimes, which is something radically different. You cannot compare it to each other. But the leaders of the masses and the totalitarian leaders, they're really deeply convinced of the ideology. They want to use it to create an artificial paradise. We've seen this in the Soviet Union, we've seen this in Nazi Germany, and later on, the ideologies of the Nazis and, and the Soviet Union were replaced by transhumanism in general. So, but the leaders of the masses are convinced of their ideology, and that's why they have this huge mental impact on the masses, but, and that's important, they feel like uh, that without any problem, they can sacrifice a part of the population to realize this paradise. For instance, Hitler felt that he could, without any problem, uh, sacrifice a part of the population to bring about this rule of the German race uh, over the world. He felt like it was perfectly justified to do that because in the end, the whole undertaking would result in a paradise which was the best possible place for everyone. And the same with Stalin. So they are convinced of their ideology and that's why they feel like almost everything can be sacrificed to make this ideology real, to realize this ideological fiction. Uh, But if I look at what you're explaining to us from a legal standpoint, if I were a judge and these people were before me, I would sentence them uh, to jail, at least. I would sentence them to jail because it does none of what you're saying is um, is a justification for them. And it's not there's no apology either. There's no excuse because what you're saying is they know precisely what they're doing, except that they believe in their own lies. That's why, why they themselves are also hypnotized. But they know that they're lying because whenever we put them on the spot and ask them concrete questions, they lie. And they know that they're lying because if you confront them with what uh, is actually happening and with what they're trying to make it make it look like, then they squirm and they try to find a way out, but they can't. So from a legal standpoint, I think they're liable. They're guilty. 
you, you could even wonder if, if it would make a difference if they would not know they, uh, that they lie. Because as, Sig as Sigmund Freud said, you're responsible for your unconscious. And it's not because you do something unconscious Very that you're good. not responsible for it. Very good. It's very difficult if mass formation happens at a very large scale in a society. You can make the hypnosis less deep uh, mm -hmm. by, by continuing to talk. And that's what we all have to do, I think. The people yes. who have a different opinions, yes. the people who, who, who know yeah. about the different narrative, they have to continue to speak in the public space. That's extremely, yes. extremely important. And I'm, I'm convinced that in this way we will succeed and keeping open a certain path besides the, the mainstream uh, yes. narrative. Um, I think we are just building space for those who don't follow the narrative, who are in the streets in Paris, who are in the streets in Rome now. Yes, If course. we speak about it, they, are, they don't follow the narrative. They need more space. And we, we have to, I think we have to, to build this space with our theories and with our talks. And I think it's very important that we that we keep take ser take serious all the other peoples who are not on the street who are who are in their offices who are afraid to lose their job when they say what they what they really they don't they don't dare to say it but there is something in their head that makes them doubt they see their real numbers yes. but they have to speak differently so there is a conflict in many people and i think we have to strengthen them so we have to give them power That they that they dare yeah, that they don't feel that they don't feel alone. So I think this yes. is the, our function. Yes, and, and 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 we also have to do it somewhat paradoxically for the individuals who are believing in the mainstream narrative and who are grasped in this process of mass formation. Hmm. Because if we stop speaking, the the hypnosis will get deeper, and that's <laughs> that's something that's something very interesting. Yes. From a historical point of view, around 1930 in the Soviet Union and around 1935 in Nazi Germany, uh, the opposition was uh, completely extinguished. And then you see something that is very typical for a totalitarian state. Then a totalitarian state starts to, uh, to show its most uh, aggressive pace and it starts to destroy, Hannah Arendt says literally, it starts to devour its own children. It starts to destroy its own children. Stalin yes. uh, extinguished 50% of his, uh, of his communist party. So totalitarianism and mass formation are intrinsically self-destructive. And that's something, for instance, that is completely different in a dictatorship. Because in a classical dictatorship, once the opposition is overwhelmed, the dictator starts to lessen to get milder because he realizes that he needs the population to be on his side. He, yes. needs to make the, he needs to make them content with them. And yes. that's what the totalitarian state does not realize, because the totalitarian state is really based on, on a kind of yeah, uh, mass uh, hypnosis, yes, uh, which makes it unaware of reality and uh, it reacts in a, in a radically different way. So I think we have to speak for both the people who are in the masses and for the people who refuse to go along with the masses. Uh, they need us both, I think. One of the biggest biggest problems and what makes totalitarian regimes so alluring in the short term is that they create in the short term very orderly societies. And that that's, in my opinion, what makes talking to people rather difficult 
Because you can't say, well, there is no more rule of law. They all, all, all think of a classical dictatorship where there's just one figure that does whatever he wants and creates chaos. But the problem is a totalitarian regime creates a very strict, very orderly society with a very strict rule of law. Look at the Nazis. They, they created more laws, more government agencies, more policing, more everything. And that's what we see here. You can't go to people and say, well, there is no more rule of law. In fact, there's more police on the streets. There's more court rulings against, so to say, minorities. And then they, they can always say, well, what do you want? We're still living, living under the rule of law. Everything's fine. Yes, I do not agree that totalitarian states impose laws. They actually impose rules. Who yeah, change, rules, of course. Who, rules, rules who change every five minutes. That's something that Hannah Arendt notes already. Uh, both in the Soviet Union and in Nazi Germany, there were no laws anymore. And I think even in this situation, there is a big risk that the pandemic law seems to be a law that erases all the other laws. <laughs> and that says that from now on, we will live by rules that are changed no matter how the situation evolves. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. You know, one of the things that is universal to all forms of collectivist governments is that the end justifies the means. Every single variant of every ideology that is not based on individualism and freedom offers some promised paradise or idyllic social condition at the end of the tyrannical road. And the reason that that can never possibly happen is this. Ends and means are always the same. This is what distinguishes individual freedom and capitalism from every other form of social or political convention. The ends and means are one. They are the same. You can see why politicians bent on power simply cannot allow these conditions to prevail. Because where freedom and capitalism operate on the principle of consent, all other forms of government operate on the principle of coercion and force. And the dictators get to be the ones pulling all the triggers. And dictators come in all shapes and sizes, especially among the common people. To wit, more letters. This one under the heading, All Shots Good, by Sandra A. in the London Free Press on October 9th. And she writes, quote, The unvaccinated are more likely to contract COVID-19 and more likely to spread it. Vaccines are proven to save lives and prevent hospitalization. If the vaccine mandates and passports encourage people to get their shocked, I'm all for it. I would like to go out and shop with my elderly mother and dine indoors with a sense of security. Let's make this happen, end quote. There you go, another proud fascist, selfishly wanting to go out with her mother and shop and totally willing to institute a fascist state affecting everyone else towards the end of her goal. Wow, it just goes on. Have unvaccinated no shame at all, reads the heading on the letter by John C.S. of London. Quote, I noticed something odd about non-vaccinated people who got the virus and suffered badly. They have deep regrets, as well they should. But like ex-Scientologists and ex-Trump voters, I have never heard any mention that they were embarrassed. I would be dreadfully embarrassed even if I was dying, to present at the hospital with COVID-19 and have to tell the staff I had chosen not to be vaccinated, end quote. Wow. Has John no shame? Would he be equally embarrassed when he learns that those choosing to be vaccinated were the cause of his injuries or death, or that those are the ones showing up in the hospital? Okay, we've been looking at the psychology of the hypnotized, but what about the psychology of the people who know what's going on? 
the people who know and understand that our pandemic is a political one and not a medical one. Well, Dr. Desma has something to say about that as well. I, I have a question. Um, I would like to know, so why, why can we see it? What's different? What kind of, uh, whatever, what's our mental immune system that we have not been affected? It seems that only 30% believe the government, like at this point, and I think it's very much related to the corona um, situation. So there seems to be uh, maybe not so many people under like a, a full-blown kind of hypnosis. So what's different with our state of mind or psychological um, constellation? Oh. And what is it? Is there like a way into this, uh, you know, breaking the spell of the people who are under it to some extent? Usually it's only uh, uh, about 30% who is really uh, grasped in the, in the mass phenomenon or in the, in the hypnosis. But an additional 35 to 40% usually does not want to raise a dissonant voice in the public space because they are scared of the consequences. So usually you have about 70% who shut up, 30% because they are convinced of the mainstream narrative and 40% because they don't dare to speak out. And then there is an additional 20, 25, 30% who does not go along with the narrative and who also says it aloud in, in certain situations. As concerns the question as to why some people uh, are immune to mass formation, uh, that's a very good question. Eh? Because one thing is sure, the group that is immune is always highly diverse. Eh? They come from all political orientations, from all social classes, from all that's something that is very striking, that it is so highly diverse. And uh, that's something that was described already in the, the Dreyfus case. In the Dreyfus case, the end of the 19th century in France, Uh, the people who, who wanted an investigation into the Dreyfus case, who, uh, who, who did not go along with the mass hysteria against Dreyfus, they were really so highly diverse that everybody noticed it. And they came from all political orientations and so on. So, but why and what connects these people and what makes someone immune? To answer that question, we need to go really deep into individual psychology and to ask ourselves uh, in what way people try to establish uh, psychological stability. Uh, some people always do it by going along with the group and other people do it much more by staying very close to what they think that is reasonable. And both these things, both identifying uh, with the group and on the other hand, trying to be as reasonable as possible and to speak up when you do believe in something, both these uh, things give a, a specific kind of psychological stability and a specific kind of psychological backbone or strength. But I think it really it's, it's very difficult to explain this in a few minutes, I think. We once did a little survey, you know, the main driving forces for us was that we had a very strong sense of, of freedom and we cared very strongly about justice. We had like a kind of extraordinary amount of uh, wish to help other people. Did you see some connection to like... Yes, of course. I think I think there is a tendency to independent thinking, to thinking with our own heads. And that's a thing that this is really a, a characteristic of people who are more or less immune to mass formation. Uh, the other thing that we have a tendency to help people, that depends a little bit, a little bit because uh, people who are... Uh, And the masses who are sensitive to mass formations have the impression of themselves that they do everything to help the others. And that's exactly everything is done out of a sense of citizenship, out of a sense of they do it all for the for the for the collectivity, for the for the community. That's they are convinced of that. 
And that also that yeah. was also, for instance, what, what Hitler said. I expect of every German that he sacrifices his life without hesitation, he said, for the German people. That was what Stalin said. And I definitely agree that uh, the people who are not sensitive to mass formation, that they really want to understand what they believe and that they have a, a certain tendency to stick to reason. But still, I don't think that's sufficient to explain why someone is not sensitive for mass formation. Actually, you have to refer to the concept of truth, I think. that there's some sort of way to sort of to get be beyond the spell by these people i think uh, you we can think about short-term solutions things we can do now and um i think we have to be um uh, honest that that uh, we will not wake up the masters i think in a few days <laughs> so but we can continue to talk and in that way make sure that the mass phenomenon doesn't get too deep and that people stay awake a little bit and remain a little bit open for uh, for corrective experiences so I, i'm sure that is possible and i'm sure and i'm sure that that in this respect it's extremely important to continue to talk in a thoughtful and deliberate way uh, as we do now at the same time also something that can be very efficacious but it's difficult is the use of humor because mass formation just like every type of hypnosis uh, relies upon the attribution of authority uh, what's always very good is, is having this gentle and polite way and that's something that's very good because if, if, if it's not in a gentle and polite way you will provoke the aggression of the masses but if it's in a gentle and polite and refined humor is very efficacious as a kind of Uh, antidotum as against the mass formation and the hypnosis. But that in itself, even if he would succeed in waking, waking up the masses now, they would fall prey to a different story uh, in a few years and they would be hypnotized again if we do not succeed in solving the real problem of this crisis, namely the question, why did we as a society get in the state in which a large part of, of the population feels anxious, depressed, uh, experiences a lack of sense, feels uh, socially isolated, and so on. That is the real problem. And if we do not succeed in finding out where this problem comes from, uh, then it, the, the masses will always be susceptible for leaders who try to, <laughs> to lure them into a mass formation. So I think the real question in this crisis is, what is there in our view on man and on the world and the way in which we look at life that makes us experience this lack of sense-making. And in my opinion, then we must conclude that it is something in our materialistic, uh, mechanistic uh, view on man and the world that leads up to radical destruction of the real social structures and social bond and uh, of the feeling that life makes sense. Uh, if you believe that human beings or a machine, biological machine, then by definition, this implies that life is senseless. Uh, what would the sense be of a life that is reduced to a little part of a, a little mechanistic part of a large of the larger machine of the universe? If you look at the universe and that uh, the human being like that, then I'm afraid uh, that you always end up by concluding that life is meaningless and that you don't really have to invest energy in, uh, in meaningful social relations, that you don't have to follow real ethical principles. And in this way, you destroy 
uh, your psychological energy and yes. your, uh, your connectedness and you end up in a free-floating anxiety. The question, uh, what uh, the difference is between the people who are grasped in the masses now and those who are not, I think that a lot of the people who do not go along with the mainstream narrative now actually uh, object against uh, the mechanistic view uh, of the immune system, for instance, against the mechanistic view on life. Uh, I think that's also uh, an important uh, characteristic that maybe distinguish, distinguishes a little bit between the two groups. Not entirely, of course, but to a certain extent, I think so. But if we have like 40% silent or silent majority kind of that's just going along, they have not bought into the, the narrative as a whole. They're just afraid. So if they have some kind of, you know, crowd where life is maybe more fun or like where it's where it's going in another direction they see that this is something attractive do you think they could just uh, switch gears and and just you know turn around and run in the other direction yes of course and they will sooner or later they will sooner or later if we can keep people uh, with our alternative voice even a little bit awake in particular this group who is not really hypnotized, if we can keep them a little bit awake until uh, the facts are so clear, the damage done by the system is so clear, then they might see it. The fully hypnotized group will never see it. That's the strange thing. You can destroy them completely. You can do what you want with them. They will undergo it and they will not wake up. But the, the other group, the 40%, will be motivated if, the, if there is more and more damage, will be motivated to start to speak up aloud. So that's the, the tipping point, I think. That's the point where someone can change. And we reach this point quicker and faster, the more we can keep them awake. So that's why I think, in my opinion, so I have to be careful if I say that, but I think it's better for us all to continue to speak in the public space. I, I think that's, that's true because c common sense dictates that this, this kind of society is not sustainable. You can't drive such an Im immense, create such an immense rift in the society and such a divide and expect the society to, to, to uphold itself. It's impossible. Uh, I will refer again to Gustave Le Bon, who, who, who observed already in the 19th century that the masses always have a preference for harsh and strict leaders hmm? who are cruel to their, to their own people. Hmm? So I hope our experts or our people who are, uh, come to the fore now as the leaders do not realize this, but the harsher they are and the more they take away of the people, uh, the, more, the more success they will have. Well, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Maybe we shouldn't have aired that part. Hmm. <laughs> but this point is critical. When asked about the group that speaks out and operates on reason, Dr. Desma particularly emphasized one thing is sure. The group that is immune is highly diverse from all social and political classes. Now, remember this sentence from the anti-vaxxers editorial I reviewed at the beginning of the show, quote, Far from being overweight, poorly educated, gun-toting religious rubes from the prairies who vote for the PPC, they may as likely be vegans in Nelson, eco-warriors with crystals, etc., etc. End quote. This is what I meant when I said that, in the midst of all her BS and non-facts, there are some truths. And that sentence is evidence right from the enemy camp that validates Dr. Desma's observation entirely. And the fact that the editorial's writer, Daphne Brahman, also mentions the People's Party of Canada is yet another unintended truth on her part. I mean, I've lost track 
of how many times over the past episodes of this show and during the entire period Robert Vaughn and I were covering the PPC and Maxime Bernier during the 2019 election that we were forced to remark just how diverse the members of the PPC were. They came from all racial backgrounds, cultures, and political orientations. And of course, the reason we found ourselves constantly forced to make those remarks was precisely because the fake news media, and right before our very eyes as frontline witnesses, always accused Maxime Bernier and the PPC of being racist. Yet another projection that the guilty cast upon those who are the exact opposite. Also notable was Dr. Desma's observation that a tendency to help people is the view that the altruists have of themselves, and then cited how Hitler demanded individual sacrifice to the collective. Well, that is altruism, both in theory and in practice. Hitler and Stalin were both incredible altruists. Altruism, of course, is about sacrificing a higher value for a lower value, as Ayn Rand described it. And altruism is the opposite of charity, despite popular opinion about the word. And finally, Dr. Desma made the distinction that I referred to regarding the differences between the state and religion in the context of mass formation hypnosis. Reason is not sufficient, he said. You have to refer to the concept of truth. Now, of course, reason is the means by which we arrive at truth, even though we can choose to do the opposite. And it is truth, and the sincere and honest search for the truth, I believe, that is the uniting force between all the otherwise seemingly disparate groups, from the highly religious to the atheist, from the differing cultures and societies and races and individuals. And of course, I cannot leave you today without commenting on how important the use of refined, gentle humor is in attacking the authorities behind mass formation, or collectivism. Regular long-time listeners to this show probably have noticed how often we've used audio bites from the 60s comedy series Hogan's Heroes. That was a television series that stands alone as a critic of Hitler's Nazi Germany through the use of gentle humor. And the scary part is that it's becoming more and more relevant with each passing day. And the power of humor is also why we like to end each show with a smile. But as the good doctor warned, even if that is successful, it's still not enough unless we address the fundamental causes of the emotional plague that grips so many in the collective. We might wake some people up from the COVID crisis, but the masses will fall prey in being hypnotized by a different crisis. And that's why climate change has been re-emerging on the fascist agenda. That's the next planned crisis for the hypnotized. Perhaps in addition to other variants of germs and viruses, they should also be taught to fear. The world is in desperate need of a philosophy based on reality, on reason, on personal ethics and morality, and on the principle of consent for the masses, for the body politic. It is to that end, if you will, that we should all be working towards. And above all, with your support, we have to speak out on a mission of eternal vigilance against mass formation and the dangers of the collective estate. And that's exactly why you're invited to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be alright
Sheriff Forsyther, what a surprise. As a matter of fact, we are full of surprises tonight. The Führer has just arrived. The Führer here? And in a very good mood, sir. I must greet him at once. I would have won the war a long time ago if it wasn't for my generals. They are ignorant, stupid fools, and they know nothing about war. All they do is eat and have good times. Really? Yeah. I have one general who looks like a stuffed goose. But believe me, one day the goose will hang high by his heels. Second thought, I will see the funeral some other time. 